Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everyone thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we are live on tape from Dublin. This is our third and final look at the magical date of August the 23rd and what it means in the mystical world of the Beatles. We've already proven many things, haven't we? It's first week in Hamburg, it's middle of the cavern, it's John's wedding anniversary with Cynthia, it's the She Loves You Day, it's the Hollywood Bowl Day, it's uh, many things to many people and it's Drugs Day. And and 1966, it's a Tuesday. 1966, it's a Tuesday. Again. (laughs) Well, that's how time works and they are playing Shea Stadium for the second time. Um, Amusingly, in anthology, some of them only remember playing it one time. Yes, this is, this is, I was going to say, this is the, the, the Shea Stadium show that no one talks about. Yes, because it is different to the first Shea Stadium show. So that, that's a hard thing to say. Shea Stadium show. That's my that's my actor's routine for the morning time. The first appearance had been on the 15th of August 1965. A huge success, famously recorded for a television special. It was a world record appearance at the time. World record attendance figures, world record gross revenue. So they they actually the the box office was three hundred and four thousand dollars, of which the Beatles pocketed one hundred and sixty thousand dollars. That's a lot of thousands of dollars. That is a lot of thousands of dollars. Um, and this was famously promoted by Sid Bernstein, um, who comes back into the Beatles story in With the seventies, <laughs> trying to get them to reform and offering them millions of dollars to to reform. You know, it's a big deal. It is a you know massive stadium that they are playing. Uh, the, the field yep. isn't hasn't got any spectators on. Everyone's just sitting up in the stands and the Beatles are playing like four small figures in the middle of everything. It's a very strange setup. It's a very strange setup. But again, and you know, we touch upon this, the Beatles are going into areas that people have never been before. So the trying to answer the question of if there is a demand for tickets, where do you play? So these are the first stadium gigs and they are defining a new way of entertainment. Yeah, if they did it today, the, the golden circle would be on the... Uh the field yeah. you have to pay a thousand dollars to exactly there'd be this new variable price ticketing system and yeah. all the rest just like Bruce Springsteen yeah. is famously doing um, but showbiz is fickle and one year after their first appearance at Shea Stadium they are doing their second appearance at Shea Stadium and it's only roughly at about 80% capacity there's 11,000 of the 55,000 plus tickets that are for sale they are they are unsold and they've been on the market for two months and this is kind of news that the Beatles are not selling out anymore is the popularity waning? Mm. 
Is it waning, do you think? Is it waning? Well, the Newsweek headline, uh, the, the week of the show was Blues for the Beatles. And they said their music, now Baroque and folk, has cooled off many who used to pack the palladiums. Hmm. I object to the use of the word palladiums. Oh, the Latin should be... Palladia. Of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Beatles tickets are about $5 if you want to go see the Beatles in 1966. Um, but due to, you know, showbiz leverage, they make more money from the less sold out gig in 66 than they do from 65's gig. Good old Brian. Yes, they get uh, 65% of the gross takings of 292,000, which makes them pocket $189,000. Back when the dollar against the pound gave you lots of pounds. Give you lots of pounds. Lots and lots of pounds. It's, uh, it's their final New York appearance. And it's also part of that 66 tour which is hard work for the Beatles. Yeah, so the the 66 tour in in the States and in Canada, there are 19 performances and the whole outing is beset by problems, uh, not least of which is the bigger than Jesus uh, controversy. Um, But also the band just generally have become tired of performing. John says you could never hear what we were doing. It would just become a sort of happening, like Shea Stadium was a happening. You couldn't hear any music at all. That got boring, and that's why we stopped it. And the safety of the band, the security issues, so in the middle of the performance, some fans do break through the barriers, but they're held back. But there's there's just an unsettling feeling, I think, to this whole tour. Yes, it's it's uh, it, it kind of starts with the initial kind of world tour where they're yeah. in the Philippines and they're kind of having trouble over there. By the time they get to the US leg of the 66 tour and, you know, Revolver is hitting the stores, um, you know, the, the bigger than Jesus is probably the, the biggest controversy that they are facing at that time. Yes. And, you know, this extends, we, we, whenever they first arrived, they... they uh, they're in Chicago and, and John makes an apology and that's a very famous sort of piece of footage which is colorized uh for the eight days a week where he's he he supposedly is in tears before he goes out to make this apology he is apologetic and the band are sort of gathered sitting around him and they're quite supportive by the time they get to New York City his mood has changed and the band's mood has changed and so Yes, abject apology takes place in Chicago, in New York. John says, well, there are more people in America, so there are more bigots. (laughs) Um, And Paul says, we don't care about those people who don't like us because of the statement. So you can see over the course of the tour, their attitude about this has changed. People are burning records. People were buying records just to burn them and sales skyrocket. They were happy with that. And, uh, you know, um, so this is uh, the Beatles inventing that most loathsome of phrases, cancel culture. Yes. Where people are deciding, yes. oh, we're going to cancel the Beatles because well, they're bigger than Jesus. It's it's like that uh, song by uh, Prefab Sprout. We were quoted out of context. It was great. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Yeah, and, and it is the, the belligerence they have in the wake of that statement where they are kind of saying, um, you know, John's doing that, you know, I'm not saying we're better than Jesus or God is a thing or whatever it is. Um, and it's not that they don't care, but it's 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 that kind of Mark Lewis thing where they're not going to be dishonest in a way. You know, they're, yeah. they're going to try and pursue the truth of what they meant. And, you know, what they did mean was that they meant more to many young people than religion. Yeah. And people and, followed them like a religion. And, and people followed them. And that there was a sort of a, a gap there. And he sort of makes the point, well, you know, I could have said television or I could have said anything. Yeah. Um, 
But it, it is, you, you can see the band coming to the end of their tether. Yes. They're fed up. They don't want to do this. And they've made the apology at the beginning of the tour in Chicago, but it's still going on. And they take a much more aggressive, less apologetic line as the tour goes on. And by the end of the tour, as we know, they, they've resolved they're not going to do it again. The Shea Stadium, I don't think there's any sense that they're thinking we're commercially on the way. And, mm. uh, they just don't want to do it. And they're also a few years ahead of the curve. You know, it's going to take another maybe three to five years for the notion of large arena, stadium yeah. gigs, sound systems, all that stuff to to catch up. So famously, you know, by the time you get to 69, you know, you have festival sound and festival speakers and the Rolling yeah. Stones tour and all the rest. They're, they're, they're trying to, to plug into to that um, space. So they're trying to do something that hasn't been done before and it's just, you know, it's not a good experience for them emotionally and it's not really passing their quality control. It, it isn't. And uh, in you mentioned about people not really remembering, uh, you know, the second gig. Neil Aspinall does talk about this in Anthology and he says, when they played Chase Stadium again for me, it blended in with the first one, though it was said there were slightly fewer people than there were the year before. For some reason, I missed the police van that was taking us. I'd gone back for something, and before I could get in the van, they slammed the doors and off they went. I was left at the hotel, so I got a cab, but that broke down in Harlem. Another cab took me to the stadium. Thousands of people, and I thought, oh, God, they're really, are they really going to let me in? I'm just going to knock on the door and say, hey, I'm with the Beatles. And then I saw the four of them banging out the window and they saw me wandering around the car park and it was like magic and they were shouting, there he is, let him in, let him in. So uh, chaos, mm. y- you know, the, he is their kind of uh, key key man on the tour and it's just absolute chaos. And then when the gig is over, they just get in a plane and they fly uh, to, to LA. And interestingly, one of the people on the plane with them is this guy, Art Unger mm-hmm. of Datebook. And Datebook is the magazine in which the bigger than Jesus statement is published. And I thought it's interesting that they're not holding it against him. Yes. You yeah. know, he is he is there. And Datebook is a slightly odd um, publication. I, I always assumed that this was, you know, was the, the, the statement was originally made on a morning cleave article and it was a very serious piece and then it was sort of transposed into a sort of teen mm-hmm. magazine and that was what the issue was but Datebook is actually a very progressive magazine and was sort of dealing with things like drug culture and Art Unger deliberately picked that headline mm-hmm. not as a sort of sensationalist thing but because it was making a serious point that there is a Avoid a kind of vacuum, and that religion is no longer filling that, and people. So he, 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 I think was approaching it from that point of view, and they, he apologized to them, but I think they respected him for what he was doing and what his intention was. What I hadn't realized was that Datebook was actually founded by Art Unger and a chap called Danny Fields. Oh yeah, Danny Fields was a very good friend of became a very good friend of Linda McCartney's. Wrote a very good bio on Linda McCartney, but he also uh, managed various bands, including Iggy and the Stooges, MC5 and the Ramones, Hmm. who took their name from Paul Ramone, (laughs) and wrote a song called Danny Says about Danny Fields. It's all connected. Is that what you want me to say? That's what I want you to say. Grand. (laughs) Um, That is amazing. What you do notice when we look at this kind of August the 23rd prism is you notice that there is a pattern here where they're in this 
end of August period. And this is the third year in a row where they are in the midst of touring the mm. US and they're heading off to the West Coast. So for a band who didn't like to repeat themselves or do the same thing, this is the third August where they're kind of in the same pattern. So they must have also been aware of that, trying to, you know, 66 is all about breaking the patterns. You know, first of all, they break yeah. the, the movie patterns. They don't They don't do the third movie. Um, and now they're trying to break the, the touring pattern. It's it's obviously the, the portal between, you know, the first half and that kind of second half. And so you kind of see that this is the third August that they're doing this. Yeah. So this is this is them just uh, disrupting. Mm. Uh, disrupting uh, the, that 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 pattern, the August blues, the August blues. So let's move a year ahead. The twenty third of August, nineteen sixty seven, a Wednesday. They are not on tour. They are not in LA. They are not in a house. They are recording, but they are not in Abbey Road. Where where be they? They be in Chapel Recording Studios, London, and um, they are recording. Your mother should know. Should she? Mm. Um, and again... It's your favourite song. <laughs> well, no. The We talk about how much changes within a week. And this is Wednesday the 23rd of August. And this is quite another transformative week in the Beatles. So, you know, Paul apparently had been to Chapel Studios before for Chris Barber sessions. Is that right? That's right. Uh, July the 20th to play the piano and ad-lib vocals on his rendition of... Cat Call, hmm. which you may know as Cat's Walk. <laughs> so this is this is an instrumental tune being kicking around. This is one of the 200 songs that they had lying around mm. from the uh, late 50s, early 60s. And uh, yeah, it's a Chris Barber, you know, trad. It's trad, dad. Yeah. Skiffle. And once the Beatles are brought back here for Your Mother Should Know, and uh, this is a track we kind of talked about. Your mother should know was in the running for the R World performance. Apparently so. Yeah. How great would that have been? Terrible. Yeah. Mm. But it kind of, you know, it's, I guess it's in this notion of, well, it's a big old sing-along. It's kind of a bland, inoffensive kind of thing. Bland, inoffensive. <laughs> it, it's, it's, oh, it, sorry. It, it's, it, it's offensive. <laughs> well, no, no, no. It's a call for uh, generational cross-generational harmony, isn't it? Well, yeah. Paul, in many years from now, says, I dreamt up your mother should know as a production number, Paul explains. And, uh, you know, we can sing one or two songs uh, uh, for real. I wrote it in Cavendish Avenue on the harmonium I have in the dining room here. My Auntie Jin, her of Let Him In, and Uncle Harry and a couple of relatives were staying and they were in the living room across the hall. So I went to the dining room and spent a few hours with the door open and them listening. Like, shut the door. No, I just think that's such a... Go and spend time with you. You've got your house guests. You know, I'm just going to go and sit over here and play the harmonium. Yeah. You know who else plays the harmonium? Alan Ginsberg. <laughs> He's the harmonium king. He is the harmonium king. But that is... a Yeah, I, I have a little note. Is this odd? Where it says, I just went to the dining room and spent a few hours with the door open playing the harmonium with them listening. I bet you they weren't listening at all. They're probably trying to watch the football or something. They probably went down the road, came back in. Oh, that was was great, Paul. Paul, Down the pub. (laughs) Really enjoyed that. Um, I didn't realise that it came, uh, that there's a title, uh, the song uh, comes from A Taste of Honey. The, 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 The film, not the song, the 1961 film. They they are recording in Chapel Studios and, uh, you know, they, they kind of start 
they, they've already done some takes in the previous day, so they're doing kind of a, um, you know, a, you know, a, one of those reduction, one of those things. reduction takes, so they can put on over vo- uh, overdubs of vocals and backing vocals. But the reason that this um, session is significant is that Brian Epstein is here. It's a key moment in the movie. It is a key moment in the movie because this is the last time they will see Brian alive. Yes. And he wasn't always at this point calling into every single session. Um, So it's poignant that he turns up at this session. Yes. He, we talked in season six about, you know, the difficulties that he was having in his personal life, in his business life. The studio was not his natural environment. And it is tempting, you know, it's not, this isn't taking place in Abbey Road. So it's not even in the Beatles' usual environment, yeah. and yet he turns up. And and what is particularly haunting, and again, if you wrote this in the script, somebody might be saying, well, this is this is, this is is a bit overkill. But we have a description, John Timperley, the engineer, he said, Brian came in to hear the playbacks looking extremely down and in a bad mood. He just stood at the back of the room listening, not saying much. Mm. And there's a kind of wistful air to that, that he, he just is watching them recording this song. And it's it's a song, you know, we talked before about Brian is not their generation. He is a different generation. Yep. They're playing this song, uh, which, which Paul talks about being, you know, a plea for generations to work together or we should sort of... And it's, a, it's an odd, very poignant soundtrack to Brian just standing watching. And it, 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 it's a very visual thing. You can see that. Playing, playing out in your mind. Yeah, and it's, it, you know, he wouldn't contribute to these recording sessions, but he still felt it necessary to turn up on occasion and, and, and talk to them. And this is the outtake version of Your Mother Should Know. It doesn't even go to completion. This no. is the version that turns up on um, Anthology 2. But this is Wednesday, August the 23rd. This is the week that we've discussed before where the Beatles plug into the Maharishi. Yeah, so again, it's a week where everything will change. And they see Brian for the last time. And as he sort of both literally and metaphorically exits, the Maharishi is entering. Yes. So this is a Wednesday session and it is the following weekend that they go on the trip to, to Bangor to see the Maharishi. So it's all very closely connected. They go into the week as one type of band, and they exit the week as a completely different type of band. Yeah, uh, they, you know, we talked before about, you know, they meet the Maharishi, they make a decision, they cancel a recording session to go down to Bangor. Uh, they renounce drugs. Yeah, you know, they say, but that's not the answer, and that's not, we're not we're not going to do that. And uh, the next day, they find out that Brian has died. Yeah, and as you say, they're a completely different. Band at the end of the weekend. Yeah, so it's a busy week. August the 23rd, 67, they are recording Your Mother Should Know. Brian is there for the last time. August the 24th, they meet the Maharishi for the first time. And August the 25th, they go to Bangor. So a transformative period of time. It's, it's uh, you know, it's the, the end of a very significant period of their lives on August the 23rd, 1967. All change. All change. Um, we then move forward to 1968 and uh, things are quite different. The Beatles have had a break. Well, maybe they haven't, but we're going to take a break now anyway. End of part one. Intermission. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. We are in the final stretches of August the 23rd being the greatest day in Beatle history. It is 1968. It is Friday, August the 23rd. Another leap year has passed. And this is the Beatles recording and mixing back in the USSR. But this is the first session ever by a group that would somewhat colloquially be known as the Threetles. Because what has happened? Is it? Is it though? Well, it's a is form it of threetles. Is it? It's not the the, the threetles we came to know in the nineties had a different we lineup. We came to know and love. <laughs> we came to know and love. Well, the name that no one loved more. Yeah, threetles. Yes, two possible earlier threetles. Okay. okay, earlier threetles. Okay. Well, we know that she said she said. Yes. Where Paul doesn't play the bass. Except perhaps he does play the bass. Which we've talked about yeah. and which is in the box set as Paul playing the bass on She Said She yes, Said. Yes, and about which we had to have a steward's inquiry at the uh, <laughs> Recent Dublin, Dublin Beatles, Beatles Fest. Beatles yes. Fest. But, uh, you know, that's why you have a lawyer on the team. But <laughs> somebody said to me as well, mm-hmm. not a second time. Yep. Does George play on that? Hmm. Now, I'd never heard this before, but apparently there is speculation that you know, George doesn't actually play on that song. So I don't know. I'm just I'm just throwing it out there. Well, not a second time, which is recorded in September 63 and appears on with the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, George is officially listed he is as officially, being he on is acoustic guitar. He is officially listed and Ian MacDonald talks about it, but uh, there is some speculation. And where would that speculation be? The internet, I suppose. The internet. I read it on the internet, so it must be true. <laughs> so it must have happened. It must have happened. Um, we'd certainly have, we've had Wuntel songs where there's only one Beatle. There's, well, no, there's Yesterday. That's a Wuntel song. Is that a thing? I a, think a, a Wuntel. A Wuntel. A Wuntel. Are there, t- <laughs> there are Tootle songs. Uh, but, someone else in the room. <laughs> uh, that's our, uh, the audience. And we always have an audience. They've just never <laughs> laughed before. The, <laughs> and uh, But uh, this, this is the three because the previous night, Ringo famously quit the band. He does. That most angry of men, Ringo yes. Starr. Slow to anger, fast to walk. <laughs> uh, so where should we go? Back in the USSR or Ringo? Which which avenue to go down What first? do you think? Let's, let's go down the Ringo Avenue. The Ringo Avenue. Ringo um, seems to, you know, have been taken for granted. Um, the patience of Job uh, he is described uh, by Ron Richards as always sitting in the reception area of Abbey Road, waiting, just sitting there or reading a newspaper. He used to sit there for hours waiting for the others to turn up. That's just rude. It is kind of rude. You know, we're going to convene a session, but we're just not going to be there for several hours. Yeah. You just sit there. And and, and famously, Ringo says, you know, he learned how to play chess on Sergeant Pepper because yeah. he was so hanging around and bored. 
I think it's the way... It, it's the new way of recording. Yes. So about overdubbing and, and working in the studio. And, you know, so he does his drum part and then he's kind of surplus to requirements mm. um, because they've got the basic rhythm track is usually the first thing that they, they, they put down. One of the things that, you know, we mentioned when we talked about the previous 23rd of August and Art Unger being on the flight uh, to LA uh, with them after the Shea Stadium, the second Shea Stadium gig. He has a very long interview with Ringo on that plane and Ringo talks there about the possibility of them going their separate ways mm-hmm. and alludes to the fact that um, going to be difficult for him. You know, he's the drummer. He doesn't write songs. He talks about the fact that he doesn't have as much money as the others because of the songwriting. And he is the one that you would think would be the last to leave Mm. if you were looking at it purely from the point of view of, well, what's he going to do? Is he going to be able to forge a career on his own? But yet he's the one that cracks. So you've got to think what happened. Well, yeah. And and Ringo, from the perspective of August the 23rd, 66, he knows that John's going off to make a movie and George is going to travel to India and Paul is going to do a soundtrack and he might be trying to wonder what's going to happen next if they're saying we're not going on the road anymore. He he can question what his uh, purpose is. But, you know, th- by the time we get to 1968, they have kind of rewritten the rule books for, as you say, how to use a recording studio. Mm. Sessions generally start at 7pm. And they are keeping rock star hours where they will, you know, start at 7pm and kind of roll through till four or five or six in the in the morning. Uh, and people just have to keep up with them. And so the previous day, August the 22nd, um, you know, they're, they're due to begin at 7pm. And chances are they arrived late and there's apparently just some tension in the air. Yes. So we have, there are various people have commented on this. So uh, there was an engineer, Peter Vince. He says things were getting very strained on Beatles sessions by this time. The engineers would be asked to leave. They, the Beatles, would say, go off for a meal or go off for a drink. And you'd know they were having heavy discussions and didn't want anyone around. And this is also famously, this is the album. These are the sessions where George Martin absents himself. Um, Chris Thomas comes in. Jeff Emmerich exits. So the whole thing seems quite fraught, despite the rewriting or the reappraisal that came with the White Album box and everybody's very jolly and it was marvellous and everybody's getting all famously. And, you know, with the White Album reissue, they they did sort of gloss over the fact that one of them actually left. Yeah, yeah. And and it seems that Paul was, uh, and this will sound familiar to anyone who's watched Get Back, Paul was trying to get a particular drum pattern across to Ringo. And, you know, you think of Beatles history, Ringo doesn't really need to be told much. He's got his own fantastic drum patterns, you know. Well, uh, yeah. But Paul I, is apparently a la George and Get Back trying to indicate some kind of drum pattern he wants because this is the start of recording for back in the USSR. Yes, I think this is it. So um, supposedly, supposedly Paul actually gets behind the drum kit and it's sort of demonstrating, you know, just hit this one and then hit that one. And uh, yeah, and then Ring- Ringo sort of, again, similar to the George and Get Back, I'll just be leaving now. Yeah, <laughs> You know, it's 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 almost a kind of a, something is building up and then it's a spur of the moment decision. It's like, well, well that's it. I'm, I'm off. Mm. And, uh, you know, Ringo has said, He's quite tactful in the way that Ringo 
is is <laughs> Paul is the greatest bass guitarist in the world, but he's also very determined. He goes on and on to see if he can get his own way. And Ken Scott, who was the engineer on the session, says, I remember Ringo being uptight about something. I don't remember what. It's very diplomatic. Mm-hmm. And the next thing, I was told that he'd quit the band. And Ringo said, I felt two things. I felt I wasn't playing great. And the other three were really happy. And I was an outsider. outsider. So, you know, I came to this decision. Fuck it. I'm leaving. Yes, I, I, I do like, Ringo said many years later, every time I went for a cup of tea, Paul was on the drums, which I think is quite funny. Um, but Paul in 1986, you know, reflects on it because it's, you know, an important kind of moment in the Beatles. It's the first time any Beatle walks out. Yeah. Okay, we can talk about She Said, She Said some yeah. other time. But that's but, just, that, but it's well, fir- that, that seems to just be a... You know, you throw toys out of the pram and you go yeah. home. But there's no question, no suggestion in 1966 that Paul is leaving the band. It's just, that, you know, he's leaving the session. Yep. Um, but Paul kind of in, in 1986 says, you know, I'm sure it pissed Ringo off when he couldn't quite get the drums to back in the USSR and I sat in. Ouch. Uh, <laughs> on his way to being a great songwriter type vibes there. Yep. Uh, it's very weird to know that you can do a thing someone else is having trouble with. This is the point at which you have to say to Paul, stop, stop talking, talking, Paul. If you go down and do it, just bluff through it. You think, what the hell? At least I'm helping. No, you're not. Then the paranoia comes in, but I'm going to show him up. I was very sensitive to that. No, you weren't. <laughs> I think that's the problem. That is the problem. It's a bit uh, like saying, I'm so sensitive to this thing that is very annoying and I'm going to keep, keep doing keep it. Doing yeah, uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not a great excuse. One thing that did occur to me when, you sang, when Ringo was saying, you know, every time I went for a cup of tea, he was on the drums. If you remember in 1974, when Paul turns up for that, a toot and a snore, Mm-hmm. Uh, jam session and Ringo is his drum it's Ringo's drums and Paul gets behind Paul gets yep. behind the drums and then Ringo isn't there but comes in the next day and he, he said he knew that Paul had been on the drums he said like who's because he had adjusted the drums he changed the drums and it was set up in a slightly different way so yeah yeah he's got form Um. so you know, when they go in on August the 23rd, 1968, it is without Ringo. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the second day I'm back in the USSR and they kind of um, produce a vibe, uh, as Ken Scott says, you know, Ringo's not here today kind of thing. And they just carried on as usual. So, um, you know, according to Ken, uh, Paul knew what he wanted on the drums. He played them himself with George playing a chopping pattern on electric guitar to accentuate the snare beats of the drums. Uh, John sort of recounts playing bass on this I'm not sure about that yeah I think he I think he does play bass but that was wiped yeah um, and th- this is what's interesting because you know the the popular lore is Ringo left so Paul just got behind the drums and he played the drums but actually it's a it's a sort of a composite mm. drum part so John plays the drums George plays the drums George hits a snare at some yeah, point so, yeah so every it's, it's a sort of composite thing and it's it's a bit like that um you know, is it Paul? Is it Ringo on Dear Prudence? The, the answer is, I think it's both of them. Yeah. So Ringo is also absent for that. But perhaps he's overdubbing something when he comes back. Um, so I think, and similarly, she said, she said, Paul isn't there. He's left the session. But actually, there is something he has done, which is is still on the track. So the overdubbing at this point sort of blurs the lines. Yeah, it's um, it's amazing that Back in the USSR is such a tight rockin' song, considering it's quite Frankensteined and quite yeah. precariously put together. Um, uh, and obviously it comes on to open the album, so it's, yeah. it's that good. It's, it's that good. And, you know, Mark Lewison r- refers to it as one of their tightest and best recordings 
recorded rock songs ever. And I think that's that's absolutely right. And they're working, uh, you know, they're working in adverse conditions. They've lost their drummer. Yeah. Um, Ken Scott again says they did back in the USSR what I seem to recall was a composite drum track of bits and pieces, probably with all the other three playing drums. And there are drum parts that we can hear being played while Paul is playing instruments on, on the tape and some of the overdubs. Uh, you can hear on the White Album uh, Super Deluxe Edition set where you hear George practising snare drums and tambourine sounds and all of yeah. that. Yeah, and so Lewison says uh, the song was also a composite recording in other ways with three bass guitar parts played by John, Paul and George respectively and both Paul and George playing lead guitar. So it it, it, it brings the other three together. mm and uh, so that's what they do on August the 23rd is that they make this kind of composite patchwork recording of back in the USSR, um, you know, complete it uh, and they just get a monomix done straight away. Yeah, very fast. And that's the monomix uh, is done on the day and they mix in the sound of the jet engine and there you go. It's it, done. It's a Viscount Turbo Prop airliner, folks, in case you want to... Uh, Did you have an app that tells you that? <laughs> I do not have an app that tells me the sound of a well, jet. Well, you had a... I, I, had, I had my bird sound app. You had app. your bird sound app that yes. told you it was actually a Blackbird. It's actually a Blackbird on Blackbird, folks. Um, so it was quite productive, the session, and it goes on till 3am. So I guess at that point, it's August the 24th. We're not really interested anymore. And is, is Ringo... Where does Ringo get on a plane to Sardinia? And yeah, this, he, this, this is on Peter Sellers' yacht he goes. Point. He goes off onto Peter Sellers' Sellers his yacht and he learns about Octopi Gardens. Octopi Gardens. Octopi yeah. Gardens. Uh, yeah, I should really object to that, shouldn't I? Oct- well, it's possessive. So, you so can- you're all right. Well, octopus, it depends. I haven't checked where the apostrophe is. It, is. is it a single? It's a single. It's the garden of a single octopus. <laughs> um, oh, man, this, that, that needs a lot of thought. Um, back in the USSR, we should talk a little bit about that song itself because, um, yeah, it was written by Mike Love, wasn't it? It was written by Mike mm-hmm. Love. Yeah, that's uh, absolutely. <laughs> the, yeah. He's like the American Donovan. He is the American Donovan. Yes. Oh, that's unfair. That's unfair. That's very unfair. Very unfair to Donovan. We take that <laughs> take that back if we don't take it out. Um, but it, it's a song that goes back to the Indian period yes. uh, when they were uh, with the Maharishi and Mike Love is in the he arena. A, he has a birthday mm. and they, they make up a song and called Spiritual Regeneration, which is a kind of Beach Boys-y pastiche. And one of the things that I was... You know, I know I'm disappointed with everything that comes out uh, in these box sets. But one of the things I was disappointed in in the White Album box set is that Spiritual Regeneration, which is there is a very good bootleg recording, did not come out because I, I think it's interesting to see that song, then the Isher demo, then the finished version of um, Back in the USSR. And you can see it's a very clear... You know, Paul, you, you can almost hear the thought process where yeah. they're kind of doing something Beach Boysy for Mike Love's birthday. And then this clearly puts a notion in his head and it develops through E-shirt to the, to the finished track. But yeah, it was Mike Love that came up with most of the, the uh, <laughs> lyrics, I think, according to uh, Mike Love. Well, I, I, you know, it is a, it is a song that uh, you kind of forget how funny it is. Like it really is a bit of a... It, it's, it's hilarious. It's, it's, it, is, it is hilarious, but it is a bit of a, a sly dig at the Beach Boys. It's very much a sly dig at the mm. Beach Boys. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it highlights the fact that the Beach Boys were ripping off Chuck Berry. Yes. Um, it's making fun of the Beach Boys' harmonies. You know, but the harmonies, the vocals are brilliantly done. Yeah. And it has, I think, one of Paul's best lines, which is, 
George was all, all was on my mind, which <laughs> yeah. is which is a Ray Charles song. You know, that's a that's a brilliant, brilliant uh, throwback. Um, so Mike Love uh, says. This is a quote from Mike Love. You can decide to put some salt with it or not. I was sitting at the breakfast table and McCartney came down with his acoustic guitar and was playing back in the USSR. And I told him that what you ought to do is talk about the girls all around Russia, the Ukraine and Georgia. He was plenty creative, not to need any lyrical help from me, but I gave him the idea for that little section. Hmm. And... As we get to 2022 and 2023, it is not in Paul's set list anymore. No. Why is that? Well, it would be to do with Russia and the Ukraine and the USSR as a conceptual uh, entity. I I live in a Beatles bubble. I don't pay any attention to it. You should check out uh, this thing called The News. It's great. What we should do is get, we should get Donovan and Mike Love. Mm Mm-hmm. Garfunkel, Messina, <laughs> put them all together as a yeah. band. I think that'd be good. And John Oates. John Oates. John Oates as well. Um, and Back in the USSR has its roots in the I'm Backing Britain campaign, which I feel we've You talked- keep mentioning that. You keep mentioning I, that. I, I, I just I, like the idea. Could you, we're gonna, I'm going to... I love the I'm Backing Britain campaign. It just makes me laugh so much. I am going to edit this and just have a kind of, some kind of mix of you just going... I'm Jason Cardi. I'm backing Britain. <laughs> well, you know, it was it was a campaign for people to be more patriotic and to work free hours uh, to back Britain. It's it, everything old is new again. It's this it's, is a it's, throwback to in the very first episode where you were saying what made the Beatles successful was they slept under a Union Jack. <laughs> yes. Um, is there anything the I Union Jack hasn't your, given us? I admire your mm. commitment to Britain. Mm. Oh, God. Um, So that's back in the USSR, August the 23rd, um, 1968. Ringo has quit the band. Ringo has gone missing. But again, Beatle weeks are very crazy. You know, it's the same week where John and Yoko appear on Frost on Saturday on August August the 24th. And a certain single called Hey Jude comes out, um, certainly in the US, on the 26th. So... It's all go. It's all go. It's all go. And of course, um, in 1968, it's uh, John's sixth wedding anniversary, but they are separated. They are separated. So it's... Poor Cynthia. That hadn't, that hadn't struck me. Yeah. Uh, when we were, with the, 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 you know, all this was happening around the time of their sixth wedding anniversary. Yeah. There you go. Oh, that's, that's a diner. Sorry, August the 23rd. Um, so we wrap it up on August the 23rd, 1969. And in some ways... August the 23rd, 1969, is the first day of the rest of their lives. Because the last time the four Beatles together undertake a professional commitment is on August the 22nd, 1969, when they gather um, for a day of photo shoots. And it is another week, again, where they start the week as one band together. Uh, it, it is a Saturday, August the 23rd, 69. They are working in Abbey Road at the start of the week. And by the end of the week, they will never be together again. It's another diner. <laughs> well, you know. This, this, these episodes started so well. Spoiler alert. They split started, up. They split up. Yeah. So this is this is the Ethan Russell and Monty Fresco. That's a great name. That's a fantastic name. Um, this is the last Beatles photo session, a very famous session that I'm assuming anybody uh, listening to this show would um, be aware of. It's their final photo shoot and it's based out in Titners Park, John's yep. new house. And there's a donkey and there's fields of wheat and yep. ha- headgear, weird headgear. and Beatle wives. Beatle wives. And mm. uh, yeah, it's, 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 it is very strange that 
that that is the last uh, time they are together. Because the point of that is we're having a photo shoot. You know, we're all, we're <laughs> yeah. all here, we're a band. Uh, but you can tell, I mean, you, you, it, it is, you can feel the tension mm. in, in those, in those uh, photographs. But I like the idea that, you know, the next day is the first day of the rest of the lives. There's obviously, you know, we're well into the Schrodinger's Beatles era. And yeah. is, are they together? Have they split up? It's when probably the s- first day of Schrodinger's it's Beatles. The, is the 23rd of August, Why didn't we put that? We should, we should have started with that. <laughs> it is. Yeah, this is probably the first day when, you know, they, they, they have a communal photo shoot and then they'll never be together again. And no one, not even themselves, are really very sure. Yeah. Are we together? Are we splitting up? Well, nobody says anything. Nobody knows. Uh, you know that you know, there's vague plans to. You know what has to happen is that Abbey Road has to come out. Yeah. The last time they're in Abbey Road as a studio is on August the twentieth that week. So they're doing the final uh, mixing and editing for "I Want You." She's so heavy. They're slashing off the final chord. They're meeting up two days later for this photo shoot, and as we said, they're kind of very famous photos and. Um, the website Beatlesbible.com has a lovely chronology of what it feels are um, the, the the order of the sequence, the, yeah, yeah, the sequence of events. Because a lot of people feel that the last photo that the Beatles ever took was of them uh, yes, it, waving uh, at the table, this, yeah. and it's actually them standing up um, at uh, on the balcony outside. And uh, you know, August the twenty third, nineteen sixty two, was the first professional photo shoot with Ringo. So there is a synchronicity. Or sorry, August the twenty second, nineteen sixty two, yeah, uh, was the uh, the 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 first um, photo shoot with Ringo. So um, uh, and it's the the, the day of uh, uh, you know of Ringo being in the band. So you know, there's a, is a there's a synchronicity that this is kind of how they end. Yes, and uh, we're, we're taking it as gospel that that is the last time they were together. But well, Chris O'Dell. <laughs> we now cut to Chris O'Dell. Yeah, um, this is the query about um, Patty Boyd Harrison's nineteen seventies birthday party. Yes, so St Patrick's Day, seventeenth of March, nineteen seventy. Chris O'Dell talks about you know this is a sort of housewarming for Friar Park. It's it's much like Tittenhurst on the day of the photograph. It's you know it's not finished. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know whether the illegal lake is in Tittenhurst on the day of the photo shoot, but it is not. It is not. The, the, the John and Yoko they've only owned Tittenhurst Park a few weeks at this point, so it's always oh. very pretentious that the Imagine House is where the Beatles last um, congregate. Well, but unless it's Friar on, Park on, in unless on it's Friar March Park. the 17th, So Chris O'Dell, who is a sort of, you know, central figure in Apple in the sense that she's sort of personally friendly with, with, with Patty Harrison, with George. Um, she's working in Apple, very close to Derek Taylor. She recounts the fact that there is a birthday party slash housewarming party at Friar Park, 17th of March, 1970. And she will say that all four of the Beatles are there. I don't know whether that's true or not. March, you know, 17th of March predates, you know, at least one or possibly two of the things we identified as the Liberty Bell days. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody's thrown a brick through anybody's window at this stage. Uh, letters have not been delivered at this stage. Arguments have not been had. But it seems unlikely. If they were all there, were they all in the same room at the same time? Yeah, yeah. You know. So again, we, we should get Chris O'Dell or Patty Harrison, Patty Boyd, we should say, who's got a very good book out, but no photographs I've checked uh, of the four Beatles at the house in 1970. But as you say on 
you know, Saturday, August the 23rd, 1969, um, it being the first day of the rest of their lives slash the first day of Schrodinger Beatles, they do not know what is going to happen next. And Abbey Road is still a few weeks from mm-hmm. coming out. But again, this notion of Beatle lives being busy, um, it is, uh, you know, there's still some, uh, you know, Beatle recording sessions in the future. But um, on the 28th of August... Paul becomes a dad. Mary McCartney is born. And the other three Beatles are hanging around um, without Paul going off to see Bob Dylan at the Isle of Wight. Yeah. You think if if Linda, if the baby had been due, you know, two weeks later, Mm. perhaps the Isle of Wight concert would have been the last time the Beatles were all together. Because presumably Paul would have gone. I I guess so. I don't see why he wouldn't have gone. You know, he would have wanted to go. Um, So, uh, you know, and there's those pictures at the time of uh, George playing tennis with... uh, Bob Dylan is yeah. quite funny because George and Bob are, are hanging around. So, you know, it's it's kind of business as usual in a way. It is. And as you say, it's it, again, it's a week in which there are momentous things happening. So you've got the photo shoot uh, that, that last time they're together, Isle of Wight, Paul becoming a father. Just another week. Just another week. So, you know, and we've we've maybe beaten it to death, this notion of what happened in the months uh, at the end of 1969 and the start of 1970 and the things that could have happened or the things that could have brought them back together. But certainly from August uh, the 23rd, 1969 to today, you know, you could argue this is all the post-Beatles universe, certainly the post-Beatles working universe in a way. It all starts here. It all starts. So can we say... The, the 23rd of August. It means it's the summation of these three episodes that we should be having some kind of celebration or I saw Mark Lewis and was designating a day as Beatles Day. Should we should we be lobbying for the 23rd of August as being Beatles Day? Well, I, I think it is reasonably significant, you know, as, uh, uh, you know, there are probably maybe some other dates. I'll go back to the drawing board and see, I don't know, February the 17th. Or yeah, just pick a date. Just pick, pick a any, random pick date. I, I, maybe there is, maybe you could just throw a, a dart yeah. at the dartboard of a calendar and find a, an interesting Beatles date. But to cut through all of those things, uh, I don't know, were they aware of how time was passing around them when they were living this existence, whether they could actually say when they're getting that photo shoot done, well, you know, it's about a year or two since we were in uh, you I, know, Shea Stadium and all the rest. I, I, you just have a sense that they just don't have time yeah. to look back. And, and possibly August the 23rd, 1969 is when they did kind of take their foot off the gas and start to look around and, yeah. and see what was what was happening because you know you know September 69 is the pivotal month i i bet on the 23rd of august in any year apart from the year he actually got married john didn't even think about his anniversary <laughs> <laughs> he, well, what we learned on was that, you know, he was more obsessed with the Remo 4 on the yes. day he got married than, yes. than with that, his wife. Yeah. Um, but what do you think, everybody? Is August the 23rd uh, a, a notable day that we should be celebrating year in, year out? Uh, maybe we should look at August the 23rd, the solo years in the future. That's another seven or eight episodes right there. Um, but let us know what you think. We are available in all the usual places at Beatlespot on Twitter. The Nothing's Real Facebook group, uh, 7,000 odd people and growing strong. The website, www nothingisrealpod.com where we have links to old episodes and information about our ACAST Plus tier where we've got many, many, many bonus episodes and thank you to all our subscribers and we're always happy to discuss these issues wherever you can find us online. But for now, my name's Jason Carty. My name's still Stephen Cockcroft. <laughs> uh, Stephen Stills and this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.